Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Woolerton, Monticello's webmaster. In 1995, Alan Alda was the featured speaker at a special dinner on Monticello's West Lawn. Fresh from a filming trip to China for Scientific American Frontiers, the award-winning actor related his efforts to look for clues into Jefferson's character and then made connections between efforts by a Chinese scientist to produce a high-yield strain of rice and Jefferson's commitment to the sciences and freedom of thought. It was an entertaining talk that managed to be touching and thought-provoking as well. When Dan asked me a little while back if I would talk a little bit for a few minutes tonight about my feelings about Thomas Jefferson, I, I said, sure, that, that sounded like a lot of fun, and then, then I get to hear other people talk about Jefferson, and, I, and it just sounded great. And then as, <laughs> as time went on, it started to sink in, and I realized that there were going to be actual historians in the room <laughs> while I was talking. <laughs> and <laughs> I do have a lot of feelings about Jefferson, and the main one is utter terror. Well, I'll, 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 I'll do the best I can. <laughs> you know, it, it, I really am impressed with you folks tonight. I, I've, I've met a few of you. I just want to, I sincerely want to thank you as a fellow citizen for what you are doing. You're doing such an important thing to keep this man alive uh, and, and everything that he represents not only to our country but to the whole world. Um, I'll tell you a little more about a personal experience I had that makes me know that. You see, what, it's what's so hard that you can't just talk for a few minutes about Thomas Jefferson. I mean, you know this better than I do. I mean, uh, the, the historians here. See, what I'm afraid of is, is I'm going to say either I'm going to say one of two things, what you already know or what you have never, ever heard before because it's not true. <laughs> But I mean, you, how can you talk about Jefferson? He's too many people, you know? I mean, one of the founders of the country, Secretary of State, Vice President, twice President, not to mention the fact that he was an inventor, an educator, a musician, a mathematician. Sounds like an 18th century rap song, then. Geographer, philosopher, botanist, physicist, linguist, agronomist, archaeologist, meteorologist, paleontologist. Well, I mean, it just goes on and on. He didn't just contribute to these fields. In some cases, he invented them. Not to mention the fact that he was this incredible writer who could take the dreams of a nation and put them into a few words that still ring down through two centuries. Still inspires us, still inspires the hundreds of thousands of people a year who walk through the, those rooms and left his mark in every room, the mark of intelligence. Well, I'm going to try to give you some feelings that I have about Jefferson. And the, my angle into this is that as I read about him, my actor's curiosity is aroused by him because he was so many different people. But I keep studying him, looking for, as I would if I were an actor playing a character, looking for the clue to his character, looking for that telltale gesture that reveals his soul, if I can find it. 
Well, there's one trait, even though he's these many people, there's one trait that keeps reasserting itself for me, and that is his passion for reason. I just, I opened a book at random uh, of uh, his writings, and I saw a letter to, to Madison, to James Madison, in which he said, information to the people. This is the most certain and the most legitimate engine of government. Educate and inform the whole mass of people. They are the only sure reliance for the preservation of our liberty. And I can remember standing in the Virginia House of Delegates in, in Richmond a few years ago reading that great, brave statement, certainly brave for those days, uh, in which he said, no man shall suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief. And I think of his epitaph, which I'm sure you all know, where, which he wrote himself, and which he only lists three things he did. Here lies, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, which I just read from, and father of the University of Virginia. Just those three things. Now, what was that? Was that modesty, or was that a kind of a deliberate statement of values? It, it, all, it seems to me that in some way he was saying that really when you boil it down, all that he was worth remembering for were his contributions to liberty, to freedom of thought, and to learning. And I think that nowhere was this passion for reason more evident than it was in his life as a man of science. Because that's where, for me, liberty and knowledge are inextricably interwoven because one leads to another. Liberty and knowledge into science. I think he did everything in his power to promote the, the sciences in this country, and I think he did what, everything he could to get the whole country to think in a way like scientists, to get the facts, to question authority, to make sure that what you're getting is the facts, and then to make up your own mind. I guess in a personal way, because this is about my feelings and I have to get a little personal, I guess that the reason I'm this interested in, in Jefferson as a scientist is because for much of my life I've had a, a great interest in science, and I now spend about two or three months out of every year traveling around the world interviewing scientists for a, a television show that I, I host on PBS called Scientific American Frontiers. And just a few days ago, I was in China interviewing scientists there. And I have to tell you, as odd as it sounds, it was there interviewing a scientist in a rice paddy in Zhenjiang that Jefferson suddenly came vividly to life for me. I, brought, I had brought Silvio Bedini's book with me. It's called Thomas Jefferson, Statesman of Science. And I was reading that in all of the glitzy hotel rooms and the ramshackle farmhouses that make up these incredible contrasts of modern China. But it was while I was interviewing this man in the rice paddy that it suddenly happened for me. I, I had been asking the Chinese that I met if they knew of Jefferson, and only one had. And it was this man, this, this incredible biologist in the rice paddy. His name was Yuan Longping, and he called him by his Chinese name, Jie Fu Sun. <laughs> and he knew him for his stand on independence. Now, Yuan Longping is a man who really understands independence, because as a young man, he was forced to learn Lysenkoism, which is this completely erroneous idea that, that 
acquired changes uh, for an organism now lead to, uh, to genetic changes in the future, in future generations. Uh, this was probably an idea that was very, uh, very uh, you know, attractive to communist leaders who thought that if they bashed people over the head in this generation, they'd produce future generations that did whatever they told them to do. So they said that Lysenkoism was a science, when in fact it was a non-science. And he was forced to waste his youth learning this stuff and teaching it. And what this remarkable man did was somehow he came across books on true biology and taught himself at night true biology while he was learning Lysenkoism officially during the day. And he went on to develop a super strain of rice and to become known as the father of hybrid rice. In a way, he invented hybrid rice, which up until his work was not possible. And he has increased the production of rice in China by 25 to 30 percent. And when I was standing there, I was thinking of Jefferson, who, when he was in France, took a trip to Italy, ostensibly to cure his broken wrist but actually on a couple of secret missions. And one of those missions was to find out why Piedmont rice was better than the kind grown in the Carolinas. And he wanted to find this out for two reasons. One was he wanted America to be able to compete in foreign markets with the, with the sale of rice. And the other was that he hated slavery and he felt that slavery was encouraged by the Carolina rice, which grew in hot, swampy areas that where malaria was, uh, was prevalent, and it was given over to, to, its cultivation was given over to slaves who were getting sick and dying, and he felt that if ordinary farmers had this better strain of rice that was produced by the Italians, they could grow it in the highlands, and they could grow it themselves, ordinary farmers, without slaves. So it was, it was for economic and humanitarian reasons that he wanted this rice that was growing in Italy. The only trouble was the Italians didn't want anybody else to grow it. And they had a rule that you couldn't take unhusked rice out of Italy. And the sanction was death. And that's a pretty tough sanction, so he ignored it. He, he hired somebody to uh, carry on his mule a couple of bags of this rice, and just in case he was intercepted, or took the money and didn't take the rice. He filled his own pockets with as much rice as he could, in, the, in his overcoat and all his coat pockets, and he turned around and crossed the border again. He was traveling incognito. They didn't know who he was. So he walked out with this contraband rice. Now, it seems to me that just as Jefferson filled his pockets with forbidden rice, Yuan Longping filled his mind with forbidden ideas. And they both placed themselves in the same kind of danger. And I think in that image of both of those men, you, you have this wonderful image of science and freedom inextricably mixed together. And years later now, Yuan has fed hundreds of millions of people because he insisted on thinking for himself, which is a Jeffersonian idea to the core. Yuan Longping can say, the same way Jeff Fusun could. I was bold in the pursuit of knowledge, 
never fearing to follow the truth and reason to whatever results they led, and bearding every authority which stood in their way. And you know, while I was in China that week, 44 scientists signed the petition, which was in memory of the massacre at Tiananmen Square six years ago. And all they were asking for was freedom of thought. And a couple of dozen more Chinese scientists, top Chinese scientists, went to jail. Since Galileo, in fact, before that, since Archimedes, science and freedom have been natural partners. It seems to me, it seems to me that Jefferson's search for truth and for the data that builds toward truth was such a vital part of his life that it was almost an obsession with him. I mean, we all know that he, he measured things and kept exact records of what he measured. He, he measured practically everything he came into contact with in his life. He recorded the temperature, I think, two or three times a day. He measured the plants that grew in his gardens. He, he bought a series of odometers and measured the distances he traveled. He measured the heights of the mountains all around us here. He correctly figured out all by himself the longitude of Monticello. He laid out the standards of the systems of, of weights and measures that we still use to this day in this country. He sent out Lewis and Clark to take the measure of the West in a way. And he knew exactly how long it took to make each nail in the nail factory that he founded. The thing is that he had that wonderful, smart person's way of understanding that by precise mathematical analysis, you could see into a problem more effectively than you could by a, a rough, intuitive grasp of it. See, but as an actor now, I wonder what's under that compulsion to measure. I mean, there were, of course, there were intellectual forces in his life, uh, in influences like his teachers and his mentors. Uh, there were his intellectual heroes like uh, Isaac Newton and John Locke, uh, Francis Bacon. But what was the emotional trigger, I wonder? as an actor. Well, I don't know for sure, but it interests me. It interests me that, that uh, uh, at least one form of that measuring began at a time of deep love and longing and loss. And it seems to me that there's a light motif in his life, at least as I read about him. When he was 22, his sister Jane died, and she had been retarded, and had had a beautiful singing voice, and he loved her very deeply. And when he was an old man, he, he could be brought to tears in church hearing a hymn that he had first heard Jane sing uh, when, when he was a boy. When she died, he wrote her epitaph and said, Ah, Jane, best of girls, flower snatched away in its bloom. May the earth weigh lightly upon you. Farewell for a long, long time. And then he planted flowers in her memory. And when the purple hyacinth began to bloom, he recorded its birth and its death. And those notes at the age of 22 were the first of what would be a lifetime of records of everything he grew in response to that loss. But, you know, I, for me, his obsession with recording his observations was far from a dry academic drudgery. For me, it was a way of being alive to nature. He was curious. He was truly inventive. He created a plow with a moldboard that was curved so precisely through mathematics and intuition and experimentation that it was more efficient than any plow yet 
in existence. He came up with the decimal system for counting money long before the French did. He's the only U.S. president to publish the discovery of a species, the Megalonyx jeffersoni, which was a prehistoric sloth-like thing. <laughs> he created a cipher device for sending secret messages in wartime that was so effective that its principles were still being used by the U.S. Army as late as World War II. An inventor himself, he was also the head of the first patent office, and he set standards for that office that is still in use today. You know, the popular slander against scientists is that they kill what they study, kill what they measure, dissecting it into lifeless bits. But in fact, the scientist is a poet. Because in measuring nature, he's like the lover who studies not only the topography of his beloved, but has learned by that same careful study to know the quality of her soul and to love her and not just his fantasy of her. And I think if Jefferson couldn't always love the people in his life that way, that was certainly how he loved nature. He planted many kinds of trees for the generations who would follow him. In, in so many ways, he loved you and me without ever knowing us. And he was in many ways the father of what's the best thing about all of us. It was good, I think, that he had a future to care for because... Those he loved in the present were almost always being taken from him. His father died when he was very young. He lost four of his six children. When his wife, Patty, died at 33, it broke his heart in ways that we'll probably never know because he, he kept quiet about it and just brooded for, for uh, months. He complained once that he felt as though everyone he ever loved had been torn from him by death. When it was his time to go, he turned to verse again, as he did, as he had when his sister Jane died. And on July 2nd, he wrote a poem for his daughter Martha and gave it to her in a little jewel box as he lay dying. And in the poem, he mentions two seraphs. I don't know if anybody knows who he means by those seraphim, but I take them to be his wife Patty and his sister Jane, whose, whose deaths still lay like a stone on his heart. And then on July 4th, he died. And after he was gone, Martha opened the box and read his last written words. They were like Jefferson himself, plain and direct and full of longing. Then farewell, my dear, my loved daughter, adieu. The last pang of life is in parting from you. Two seraphs await me, long shrouded in death. I will bear them your love on my last parting breath. I would say if there is a heaven and if there are seraphim, then Jefferson is among them, measuring the infinity of heaven just as he measured with infinite patience his gardens, his country, and all of nature. So that's one actor's look at Jefferson, except for one final missing thing. And that's just before an actor goes on stage. You need that one telling image of the, of the character you're playing in your head. What is he in motion? What single thing does he want? Well, I don't know. But if I were playing Jefferson, I think I, think I might go on stage at least for one performance wanting this. To defeat 
death. Not the death that comes at the end of life. He knew that was coming. But the death that comes to those who, while alive, don't really live. Those whose thinking has been taken over by others. Those who are deaf to the music of truth and the colors, blind to the colors of reality. He said the earth is for the living. And by that, I don't think he meant that we're free to squander the future's inheritance. But that we don't need to be shackled to the weak ideas of the past. I would say that just as you people in this room tonight are keeping Jefferson alive, as long as we keep learning alive, as long as we cherish our right to question and to dissent, and our duty to think for ourselves, then Jefferson lives. So for the love of this country, for the love of nature itself, long live Jefferson. Special thanks to Mr. Aldo for letting us use this talk after all these years, and to Amanda Ronchek of Studio 360 for obtaining his permission. The dinner Mr. Aldo spoke at is an annual event recognizing participants in the Monticello Cabinet, a group of individuals, corporations, foundations, and organizations that form the heart of philanthropic support for the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Other speakers at this dinner have included authors Tom Wolfe and David McCullough, filmmaker Ken Burns, and journalist Cookie Roberts. To learn more about the Monticello Cabinet, visit monticello.org give, and thanks for listening.